This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. I would not urge anyone to read this book except those who are able and willing to meditate seriously with me and to withdraw their minds from the senses and from all preconceived opinions. I saw that at some stage in my life the whole structure of knowledge would have to be utterly demolished and that I should have to begin again from the bottom up if I wished to construct something lasting and unshakable in the sciences. Descartes, born in 1596, is often considered the father of modern philosophy. He was a radical innovator, completely sweeping away the old and inaugurating a new method. Simple, pure, clear, individual thought. He claimed that he read very little, and most of his work was in the sciences. When a man asked to see his library, he pointed to a half-dissected calf in the corner. He was primarily a mathematician. He invented the Cartesian coordinates, yeah, this thing, but we're interested in him today for his philosophy, which is also what he's primarily remembered for. There are two key philosophical works, the Discourse on Method and the Meditations. The latter is a more complete statement of his philosophy. It's short, it's reasonably simple, it's groundbreaking, it's entertaining. You will literally feel your powers of reasoning being strengthened as you read it. Descartes wants to doubt everything he knows so as to put thought and philosophy on a firm footing. He wants to discover what is certain, indubitable. He is then focusing exclusively on reason. He's a rationalist. So how do we set about discovering what we know to be certain? If you knew some of your apples were rotten, you would inspect each in turn, disposing of the rotten ones and only keeping the good. How should we begin? Well, in Descartes' time, as a result of the Renaissance, the ancient skeptic philosophers were popular. The skeptics intended to show that our faculties, our senses, memories and our reason often faltered and so could not reliably be depended on. Descartes wanted to refute skepticism. He wanted to show that some knowledge was certain, but to do so he had to begin by being skeptical of everything he knew, doubtful of all knowledge. What will be left? I have withdrawn into seclusion and shall at last be able to devote myself seriously and without encumbrance to the task of destroying all my former opinions. Now, in the first meditation, Descartes says he wants to question all knowledge. He says, though, that this would be an endless task. So instead, he will focus on foundations, for once they're undermined, the building will collapse of its own accord. So where does my knowledge of the world come from? Well, my knowledge of this candle relies on the senses. I can see it, touch it, smell it. He says everything he's learned has come from the senses. But am I certain that my knowledge of this candle is real? Well, no. 
I know that sometimes my senses deceive me. Sometimes towers which looked round from a distance appeared square from close up, and enormous statues standing on their pediments did not seem large when observed from the ground. In these and countless other such cases, I found that the judgments of the external senses were mistaken. I might also be dreaming, and sometimes dreams are as convincing as reality. How do I know for certain that I'm not dreaming right now? And what if some evil spirit, supremely powerful and cunning, has devoted all his efforts to deceiving me? I will think that the sky, the air, the earth, colours, shapes, sounds, and all external things are no different from the illusions of our dreams, and that they are traps he has laid for my credulity. So, to summarise, not only are the senses flawed in themselves, they also might have been made to deceive me. I might be seeing my body in a distorted way, as if it's submerged in water. How am I sure I can see clearly through air if it's all I've ever known? I might be being deceived, and there is no way of proving that I am not. I have no answers to these arguments, but am finally compelled to admit that there is not one of my former beliefs about which a doubt may not be properly raised. And this is not a flippant or ill-considered conclusion, but is based on powerful and well-thought-out reasons. Everything can be doubted. I will struggle on, and I will try the same path again as the one I set out on yesterday. That is to say, eliminating everything in which there might be the smallest element of doubt. But this leads me to a troubling question. Might I not exist at all? Well, no. How can I not exist? I'm here, now, doubting that I have a body, doubting that the candle exists. There must be an I. But what about that demon that could be deceiving me? Well, even if it is deceiving, who is it deceiving? A me, an I. There has to be an I to be deceived. I am thinking, therefore I exist. Cogito ergo sum. It's impossible through thought for me to doubt that I am a thinking thing. Now, if I'm thinking about it, does this mean that the candle also exists with certainty? Well, no. I can be certain that I'm thinking that there's a candle, but it's still uncertain that it really exists. And this might seem limited and maybe unimpressive, but as Descartes says, we can actually be sure of quite a lot here. Now, let's think clearly. What is thinking? What does it mean to think? Well, I'm doubting asserting, understanding, denying, judging, wanting. These things are all certain. This is why this is a huge leap in the history of philosophy. In summary then, Descartes says that abstract ideas are more certain than the physical world, and he uses the example of, guess what, wax to demonstrate this further. Let us, for example, Take this wax. Its colour, shape and size are clearly visible. It's hard, cold, easy to touch, and if you tap it with your knuckle, it makes a sound. In short, it has all the properties that seem to be required 
for a given body to be known as distinctly as possible. But wait, while I'm speaking, it's brought close to the fire. The remains of its flavour evaporate, the smell fades, the colour is changed, the shape is taken away, it grows in size, becomes liquid, becomes warm, it can hardly be touched. And now, if you strike it, it will give off no sound. Does the same wax still remain? We must admit it does remain. How do we know it's the same wax though? Because we've seen it do this before, that we can imagine it doing this? Well, partly, but I haven't imagined all the shapes it can take on. I know because I can reason geometrically all the shapes it can take on, infinitely more than we've seen, smelt or felt. I know this is the same wax with my mind. I am a thing that thinks, that is, a thing that doubts, affirms, denies, understands a few things, is ignorant of many things, is willing, is unwilling, and also which imagines and has sensory perceptions. For, as I have noted before, even though the objects of my sensory experience and imagination may have no existence outside me, Nonetheless, the modes of my thinking, which I refer to as cases of sensory perception and imagination, insofar as they are merely modes of thinking, do exist within me. Of that I am certain. In this brief list I have gone through everything that I truly know, or at least everything that I have so far discovered that I know. So those ideas within us, ideas of which Descartes has what he describes as a clear and distinct perception, are true. The things that we have a clear and distinct, simple and easy perception of, like geometrical space and mathematics, we can be certain are real. He writes, I call a perception clear when it is present and accessible to the attentive mind, just as we say that we see something clearly when it is present to the eye's gaze and stimulates it with a sufficient degree of strength and accessibility. I call a perception distinct if, as well as being clear, it's so sharply separated from all other perceptions that it contains within itself only what is clear. But, he says, there is still a shred of doubt. God himself could be a deceiver. Even these basic and simple facts might be false. To overcome this, it's necessary to discover first whether God exists and second, whether he deceives. Now, Descartes' proof of God is a version of what's known as the cosmological argument. And loosely, it goes something like this. Everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, so it must have a cause. Therefore, God exists. And he says, by the word God, I understand a substance that is infinite, independent, supremely intelligent, supremely powerful, and which created both myself and everything else, if anything else there be that exists. Now, Descartes argues that the idea of God exists in his mind, and so it must have a cause 
that's greater than the idea of it. Does God exist and would he deceive me? Well, I have an idea of God in my mind. Ideas come from three places, innately within me, outside of me, or invented by me. Whatever causes something must be greater than the thing it causes. The cause must already contain the effect. The cause of something must at least contain the effect. Otherwise, how could the effect come out of the cause? A stone, for example, which previously did not exist, cannot begin to exist unless it's produced by something which contains either formally or eminently everything to be found in the stone. But it is also true that the idea of a stone cannot exist in me unless it's put there by some cause which contains at least as much reality as I conceive to be in the stone. Now, it's manifest by the natural light that there must be at least as much reality in the efficient and total cause as in the effect of the cause. For where, I ask, could the effects get its reality from, if not the cause? So, if the idea of God exists, a perfect being, it could only have come from God, a more perfect being than the perfect idea I have in my mind. Not only do I have an idea of God, but my idea of God is of a perfect God. To deceive is an imperfection, so God does not deceive. But in short, what is more perfect cannot derive from what is less perfect. But this leads to another problem. If God is not a deceiver, why do I make errors? Why do my senses deceive me, as he said? In other words, if God is perfect, why would he create something imperfect? He says, I know by experience that there is in me a faculty of judgment, which, like everything else which is in me, I certainly received from God. And since God does not wish to deceive me, he surely did not give me the kind of faculty which would ever enable me to go wrong while using it correctly. It seems from this that we have two mental faculties. The intellect, the thing that we use to perceive things clearly and distinctly, and the will, the ability to affirm or deny, to judge what is correct and what is not. We have two simultaneously operating causes, namely the faculty I possess of acquiring knowledge and the faculty of choosing or free will. But the intellect is limited. I cannot perceive all things clearly and distinctly. I am human. I have limitations. I attempt to use the will to judge things that I cannot judge. And this is how error arises. If, whenever I have to make a judgment, I restrain my will so that it extends to what the intellect clearly and distinctly reveals and no further, then it is quite impossible for me to go wrong. In Meditation 5, Descartes returns to another argument for the existence of God. In short, he says that God is a supremely perfect being, and so must exist, because if not, he wouldn't be perfect. The idea of God, or a supremely perfect being, is one which I find within me just as surely as the idea of any shape or number. And so I cannot imagine a triangle without imagining its sides, its form, its angles. In the same way, I cannot imagine a perfect being without existence being included in that definition of perfection. 
existence can no more be separated from the essence of God, that we can separate from the essence of a triangle, that the sum of its three angles add up to two right angles, or that we can separate the idea of a mountain from the idea of a valley. In the final meditation, Descartes sums up his basic arguments and wraps up a few loose ends. He discusses the imagination, but most importantly, raises again the distinction between body and the mind, known now as Cartesian dualism. While it's true that I may have a body that's very closely joined to me, ultimately it is certain that I am really distinct from my body and can exist without it. The certainty and independence of thought gives no indication that it's dependent on the body. Everything that is known for certain comes from the mind and what God has placed innately within it, and so the body is an entirely separate entity. So because I know with certainty that I exist, and that meanwhile I do not notice that anything else necessarily belongs to my nature or essence except that I am a thinking thing, I rightly conclude that my essence consists solely in the fact that I am a thinking thing. So that's Descartes. His influence is impossible to overstate. All of the great thinkers that came after him were influenced by him in one way or another, and most radically he provided a foundation that emphasised the power of the individual to reason and think for themselves. This would become a huge problem for the church especially, but as Anthony Godley writes, his theological arguments are flimsy and he's not as rigorous with what can be said to be certain as he claims, but we'll look into this further next time. Hey everyone, I feel very lucky to be able to say that I'm finally at the point where I can commit full time to making these videos. Um, it's a great honour to be able to do that. I absolutely love doing it. I'm going to make two or three videos a month and continue to improve the quality and the research and do a few more experiments and chats and rambles in between. But it is a time consuming job. It's a full time job and it is just me. So unfortunately, right now, Patreon is still the only way that then and now survives. So if you get any value from these videos whatsoever, then please consider pledging a dollar or two dollars on Patreon. If you pledge five dollars or ten dollars or more even, I will add your name to the credits. I will put scripts and the audio and at some point the videos out early for Patreons only. So if there's anything you'd like to see there, then please let me know. But if you can't afford that right now, then of course it's enough to just press like, subscribe, share, and remember to click that bell to be notified to new videos. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you next time.